Field engineering is the culmination of the delivery of our ideas to the marketplace in a way that realizes as close to immediate value to the customer as possible and provides a feedback loop to our product, engineering, marketing, and sales organizations for improvement. It's the customer-facing team of technologists who are closest to the problems faced by the customer, which enables a company to rapidly deliver world-class solutions. In this episode, we welcome special guest Egan Rinderer to discuss what makes a great field engineer, how it's unique from product engineering, and why many companies find it advantageous to develop field engineering organizations. With 30 years of federal and private sector industry experience, Egan Rinderer joined Shift5 as Chief Technology Officer with a focus on growing a world-class field engineering team to drive rapid growth across federal and commercial sectors. A veteran of the tech startup world, Egan was formerly with Tanium as Global VP of Technology and President of Tanium Federal, having joined Tanium when it numbered fewer than 20 employees. Prior to Tanium, Egan served with the U.S. military and throughout the intelligence community in the United States and abroad in an operational capacity. Egan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Josh. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my passions. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome to have you on. I mean, um, first off, you know, you have a military background, which um, I think is really unique among technologists who've had real success uh, in in the uh, in the commercial kind of startup ecosystem. So you've been able to see organizations that are very sort of mission driven and, um, you know, based on your experience in the military, like having deployed to a lot of places to enable um, mission with with technology. So it's, it's really cool that that's like a through line through your story. And of course, it resonates a lot with Shift 5, where we've got a lot of kind of veteran ethos and, and, and employees. Um, I'm excited to talk about field engineering because, frankly, this is something that, you know, uh, I don't think a lot of folks think about as distinct from just general engineering. And um, it's been a really useful distinction for me to think about how product engineering and field engineering are really different disciplines and uh, attract different kinds of people. And they require different kinds of skill sets and passions and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring that space with you today. So I think the easiest way maybe to just start off with, you know, answering the question of what is field engineering? Yeah, for sure. And it, it, you're correct. It, like, it, I think we assign the term engineering to um, maybe a little bit too liberally today in the, the workplace. But um, this is one of those areas where it truly is um, a, an engineering craft and it truly is unique in terms of the, the types of skills and the type of personality, frankly that thrives in that space. Um, so if you think about field, uh, it, it, you know, the name sort of implies it. It is that outward external facing uh, point of engagement with our customers. It's the folks who, if you look at it in terms of a full life cycle, uh, and certainly the, the people that we would hire early on uh, in a small startup like this, these are your sort of your unicorn people, uh, the folks who are just as comfortable presenting to a CEO or a you know, general officer as they are going back and talking um, in their language to the, the back end developers uh, and having a conversation about how an idea could be implemented in code. Maybe they're actually uh, banging out some proof of concept code uh, to convey that point. Um, these are folks who have uh, existed in the industry for a very, very long time. Um, they know how to go in and get their hands dirty and get to uh, a, a point of data collection or a point of execution as quickly as possible. Um, 
so that we can get a, you know, really what we're trying to do initially is get that POC on the line and then get a tech win. Uh, like that is our, that's the lifeblood to a company like this. And early on, we, we truly need field engineers in the purest sense who can live that full life cycle. First customer engagement, riding side saddle with a you know, sales rep to working with that customer uh, on the, the POC, defining use cases, writing those use cases out, putting together the documentation, doing a lot of the PMing type work, um, going back, working with uh, engineering to make sure that those use cases are tight, uh, make sure that we can execute on them properly. Uh, getting the tech win with the customer and then handing that back off to uh, sales and not not abandoning it by any means, but handing it back off in terms of uh, priority responsibility to sales to close that deal. And then once that deal's closed, they go right back in and they they do the operations and, and sustainment on that account. At this stage of a, a startup, um, that's you you want one person who can do every one of those roles. And that is a an incredibly unique uh, skill set to find. Uh, but I think we do, we probably underestimate the number of, of uh, professionals out there who can operate that way. And, you know, you, that's true. You know, you see that in the military, you see that in the intelligence community, you also see that in the business world, for sure. It's if, if you want to sort of distill it down, field engineering is where our ideas as a company and the things that we build, the products that we produce, um, that's where they meet and coexist with reality. <laughs> and that that can be a very uh, it can be a treacherous place if you're not uh, prudent about it. Um, it's an exciting place if you are. It's a really really fun place to exist. I mean the the breadth of responsibilities of of this role is is really kind of I don't know that there exists another position in in a company where you have yeah. the amount of sort of responsibilities across a range of skill sets. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of what you describe is what we traditionally think of like product owners kind of going out and getting use cases and figure, but it goes deeper than that because there's a level of technical ability and individual contribution that uh, accompanies that use case kind of development. But you're also talking about somebody who can like coordinate with product engineering to say, hey, look, like we built these components, this is how we sort of had to put them together on the customer site take the feedback, iterate on the product. There's also a customer facing nature to this, which is like, you know, trying to find folks who um, have the EQ and the IQ to do all That's right. things is, is really, it's really, really, yeah. Unique, you know? and, and yeah, you, you, you make a good point there. Like finding someone who is extreme right on the IQ as well as on the EQ side of things. That's tough. Um, so and speaking tough. from experience, that's a, that's a <laughs> tough thing to find. I can find you, you know, an army of, of really hardcore engineers who are super deep on the IQ scale, who you wouldn't want to put in front of a customer. Right. Um, and they wouldn't and want that, to be either. <laughs> they wouldn't want to be. They'd be miserable for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, we struggled um, early on with the fact that, look, you, you can only hire so many people, you know, at a very, very early stage in a startup, you know, and um, one of the things that you 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 learn very quickly when you're when you're part of a startup is that your your roles are large. And then yeah. as companies become more and more successful, roles tend to scope down, you know, your right. your levels of responsibility sort of can can increase. But the, 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 the sort of breadth of those responsibilities gets more and more scoped so that you can focus and be more excellent at like a finite set of things. 
Um, and, you know, we, we asked a lot of, of product engineers to say, hey, look, like, this week you might be working on a Python module framework for data flows, and then next week you're going to be running cables in a train. <laughs> you know, um, that's right. And, and I think uh, what you find is some folks really thrive in that diverse environment where you're just you're sort of um, you're really experiencing that full spectrum. Uh, and so it, it really I feel like it is a calling and maybe something that at least I haven't you know I haven't um, seen a lot of discussion in sort of startup circles and ecosystems around this role, but it. You know, I know in your experiences at some tremendously successful tech startups, like in your view, it was a crucial function um, that is one of the the reasons that they were so successful. Yeah. And you do have to like there's a right way to do this. Uh, You you have to be uh, disciplined about your approach. I think one of the mistakes you you, we're humans, right? We have a tendency like we find something good. We're all in. So it's if it's good today, it's good forever. you, you have to be thoughtful about it. There is a time at which you start to stratify that workforce. I don't want to have to have 300 of these unicorns, right? What I wanna do is I wanna build my foundation with people who that as I do start to stratify, have the ability to dip down into any one of those areas of specialty, whether it's you know pre-sales engineering or whether it's uh, project management or what have you, or post-sales sustainment support. Um, I want those core, that core team of people, they're the ones who set the bar, right? And they will be able to set and maintain that bar in any one of those subspecialties as we grow, as we stress to stratify that workforce. And we have people who are more focused because it, at the end of the day, you don't scale a company to multi-billion dollar uh, valuation by having to go out and hire unicorns from now through all of eternity. Um, it's, it's a waste, frankly, and it's not necessary. Uh, so from the standpoint of, of like, let's be responsible with money, right? Thinking about things like that, um, you don't want to build your entire company. Not every brick in the wall is that, but you better make, better make darn sure that your foundational um, underpinnings are made out of those, those really big, sturdy blocks. Um, and I, you know, I think that's the, I've seen it done uh, multiple ways. I've seen it where they, you know, startups will try to stratify right out of the gate and they never have the, the strength that they need, those underpinnings that they need um, to maintain that growth uh, very rapidly. And I've seen it go too far the other way too, where they just, you know, it's a hard and fast rule. Every single hire we make uh, from now through, you know, eternity is gonna be this, this unicorn hire. Um, neither of those is healthy, frankly. Right. Um, and if you wanna scale a company fast, uh, there's a right way to do that. And it's, you know, at this point it's pretty, you know, tried and true. I don't. I don't think we're we're not reinventing anything here. We're taking really good work uh, by an awful lot of smart people and sort of re-implementing it. Right. And like, I think that narrative arc is really important. That that the fact that there's not sort of a static strategy on who you're hiring and you know what sort of designation they are and um, like, I'd love to explore that a little bit. So so you. You know, when you early, early stage startup, your 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 founding team is basically doing everything. It's sales, it's operations, your engineering, you're doing product. I mean, your product strategy, it's all you like everything is founders. And you're sort of um, very intentional about every single incremental hire because it just it means, you know, when you're when you're four people and you hire a fifth, you're reducing your runway by 20 percent. Right. I mean, it's 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 a really significant decision. So and, and of course. 
it's hard to make prescriptions because there's so many different kinds of companies with different kinds of go-to-market strategies and different kinds of um, different kinds of markets and technologies and competitors and all these things. But in your experience, how how have you seen companies grow? You know, to ten, to fifty, to a hundred, and what was the role of field engineering in each of those yeah. kind of phases? Yeah, it's so field engineering. If it can be one of two things um, in, in that, especially those early days, it can either be the bottleneck or it can be the enabler. Um, and it, it, like that is a super fine line because what you can't do as a small company is you can't go out and hire ahead like crazy. Um, you, you sort of have to hire to uh, the pipeline. And so you have to have this incredibly, and I'm like, I can't stress this enough. This is probably the single most important aspect to being successful with this, but you have to have this really, really close, um, tight, well-oiled relationship with the sales organization. They have to have absolutely implicit trust in you and vice versa. And the, the thing that I've always told the folks that, that work with me, um, and there's going to be a lot of people out there that hear this that immediately smile because they've heard it a thousand times. Um, it, it is not okay to surprise salespeople. Um, and likewise, it's not okay for salespeople to surprise the field engineering team. If something is a surprise, we, then we did something wrong. We didn't communicate properly. And so the right way to do this is you build this shared consciousness uh, between the, the organizations. And it's not just sales and field engineering, um, but it, I would say that's the most important place that you have to have that shared consciousness. The sales team has to have this implicit trust in the field engineers who come back to them and say, look, I'm closest to the problem. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's my recommendation. And if there's disagreement, that's okay. But let's work through that disagreement and come to a collective decision that we're both okay with. There's always room for a, a unilateral decision in a company like this. Uh, you know, that happens from time to time, but it should be the exception. And I think that if you do that, if you have that shared consciousness, the ability to predict and time your hiring exactly right. So that you, you basically have just in time hiring. Um, it becomes almost this, this muscle memory, it becomes almost a mechanical thing because you get such a good feel for where things are at, what the likelihood of that pipeline being realized is, you know, trusting the P win that the salesperson has assigned to the, the opportunity, that sort of thing. Um, that it lets you take like so much time and energy in most startups goes into figuring out like that hiring process and making sure we don't get out over our skis. Uh, because that can be catastrophic to a startup. And I think in, in the case, you know, in, in this situation, um, you know, we've got Ralph Kahn on as our CRO. Uh, Ralph and I know each other very, very well. We've done this before, uh, you know, built massive lines of business. And, uh, you know, it's just when you see it happen and when you get that sort of that cohesion between the teams, it really is almost, a, it becomes almost uh, a sight to like it, it becomes like an art almost. And it's really a lot of fun to, to participate in that. And I'll be honest with you, that makes it really easy to attract people um, because they know you're not out there just like a drunken sailor with VC <laughs> money, you know, hiring anything that moves. Our bar for entry is incredibly high right. and people have a lot of respect for that and they want to be a part of a team that, that functions that way. And it's a really special time uh, in, in companies trajectories, you know, sure. you, you, you sort of, this growth phase um, is it's not forever. You know, if you're, if yeah. you're doing what you're supposed to do in this growth phase, you know, to your point, you're sort of, 
um, you're, you, you get to a point where people's roles are so tightly bound and scoped and that the company's operating at a very large scale, uh, it has a materially different feel once you've yes. once you success yeah. than, than after you're sort of in this post-product market fit phase um, or, or you're, you're finding product market fit in different segments, um, there's, there's a, an excitement and, and sort of mm-hmm. a, a, a profile of person that, that wants to see that growth trajectory from, you know, or maybe like, you know, uh, three, three, uh, three entrepreneurs rolling uh, suitcases around uh, from, from, from VC to VC with a, with a proof of concept uh, and, and a dream is, is too early. Yeah. Um, but it's too late once you've got, you know, a, a 200 person sales organization right. and, 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 you know, um, yeah. And I think you screen for a certain kind of person, you know, so I, I think it's also, uh, potentially interesting to explore, like, how would someone know that maybe they have the ingredients that it takes to become mm-hmm. a great field engineer? Like, what are the sorts of, we talked a little bit about some of the traits, just like a very wide spectrum of competencies, a level of, you know, ability to focus in on a problem and, and sort mm-hmm. of, uh, be very conceptual, but also, you know, interact with people um, and, and enjoy doing that. Um, you know, what, what are some of the telltale signs to you that someone's got the potential? Yeah, there's there's sort of in my mind when I'm talking to somebody, uh, you know, whether it's looking at somebody to hire or if I'm sort of thinking back through that catalog of people that I know that, you know, that I've interacted with throughout my career. Um, it's the same. And this is, this is actually kind of fascinating to me. It's the same in our business, in what we do, um, as I observed in the, the, the military in my time and some, you know, some really, really high, high performing organizations over there. And you sort of see these, um, these qualities and people, and it's, we always want to boil it down to like this X factor, like go find these people. And I think back like the Naval special warfare community some years ago decided like they'd figured it out. And they were going to go recruit water polo players. Um, I'm not sure how they figured that out, but like they will, if we go recruit water polo players, like the the success rate of turning them into seals will be you know, order of magnitude higher than, than what it is normal. They got the treading water thing down at least. <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> like they're fish, so they got that going for them. Um, but it, like, I don't think it even moved the needle. What what I look for is a, a bit more like I just look for these telltale signs. So. First and foremost, these people have an absolutely insatiable curiosity. Like they, they're the people that when they were little kids, like take that thing apart because I want to know what makes it tick, how it works. And, but along with like, that's great, but that in a vacuum, all that means is you can tear things up, right? You, you can break things and you're, you're curious, but along with that, you've got to have like this, uh, sort of this relentless tenacity to say, it doesn't matter how difficult it is. It doesn't matter if I've never seen this thing before. Like that, in fact, that becomes a driver. That becomes this thing that sort of amplifies the the insatiable aspect of that curiosity. And so they've got the tenacity to, to see it through to the end. And then they have the aptitude, which again, like if, if you're missing any one of these, you're kind of out of luck, but you've got to have the aptitude to, to like absorb all that in a very short amount of time and sort of now understand it and be able to say, okay, you know, I've, I've sort of taken this apart. I've decomposed the, the problem. Uh, there's zero chance that I'm going to give up. Right. I, I will, you know, die trying uh, before I would ever give up on, on figuring this out. 
now I have the aptitude to take that knowledge and apply it, right? So that I can sort of systematize it. But I also have to have this ability to articulate it to a novice. And that's that last piece is like you can find those first three in an awful lot of by getting a person who can then take that, which in our case, in the work that we do, this is incredibly complicated technology. But if you sort of distill it down into the why, and you can articulate that why to a person who they understand the value of the platform that they have, what they don't understand is the risk profile and what it means to them in terms of business value and the potential to impact. If you can now articulate what you've just gone through that decomposition and uh, problem resolution process, you can articulate that to, to the customer or to whomever's listening in a way that resonates with them. It's o- it almost takes on this magical quality. And now it's like, okay, I can get, like I can turn the light on in people's heads in a technological area of practice that frankly, the number of people in this world that understand it is you know probably numbers in the dozens, um, that's a magical quality to find in somebody. And that, you know, frankly, that's what I'm looking for. And it's, those things aren't terribly difficult to suss out. Um, you kind of have to get to know people and, and just have a, a conversation with them and start to learn about what makes them tick and what makes their eyes light up and have them talk to you about that and have them articulate to you, you know, when they've worked on problems like that and what it meant to them. And I'll, I'll tell you for me personally, like those are the things I carry with me. Looking back at, you know, whether it was my time at Tanium, which I, I look at as a huge success. I love what we did there and what we were able to accomplish. My time in the IC, my time in the DOD. Um, the, the things that are most precious to me in that regard are things that would probably be meaningless to, to anybody else, but it's those successes, right? It's that solving the problem that frankly, um, if you look at the way that the human mind works, if we deem a problem impossible to solve, we, we really don't, we give it no energy. We would rather, it, it's the bike shedding problem, right? right? Let's go let's go tackle the things that we can very easily wrap our heads around that are clear and present, right? Yeah, it, it's a problem, it exists, but we can understand them and articulate them easily. And so we gravitate towards those. There's a there is a demographic of people out there who, frankly, are turned off by that, are are incredibly intrigued by the impossible. The things that people say are impossible, right? It's the same thing that that drives you know young guys to want to go be a seal or, or right. go be an AFSOC or what have you. It's that same mentality, but seeing that through to execution and, and then being able to articulate it to others in a way that gets them excited is is really special. Yeah, I, I love the way that you describe it. And I'm thinking back on my, you know, exposure to different pockets of technical talents, you know, product engineering comes to mind as a, as a place yeah. where you'll find folks that, you know, they, you know, they'll, they'll spend nights and weekends trying to, you know, prove P equals MP, right? And uh, because, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's this insanely hard problem and there's, there's a, an enjoyment in, in, in working against that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, you'll find a lot of folks there, but, you know, there's, there's a whole other layer of characteristics around um, these, these, these special kind of field engineers that you're articulating. Is product engineering, like, um, do you find uh, 
pockets of folks inside of product engineering that you know you're like okay you know what that's a that's a great sort of training ground for folks that could be field engineers or yeah are there sort of non-linear ways that people get into field engineering outside of sort of traditional engineering discipline yeah yeah yeah. i I think honestly it kind of goes back to what I said a little bit tongue in cheek about that X factor, but you could look in, in any profession and you're going to find people with those ingredients. Um, and I think frankly, they can just as readily apply those, those skills and those uh, proclivities and things within uh, product engineering as well. Like that's where you get some of this like, incredibly rapid development and rapid innovation within the product teams yeah. um, comes out of those people. If, you know, if they want to make the leap, if anybody wants to make the, the leap to field, because it is a like the the day to day of it is very different. Right. There is basically no left, right bounding. Um, you're sort of out in the Wild West. And, you know, some days um, uh, in this, I'm not kidding in the slightest. Like I've had guys on my team get staplers thrown at them by, <laughs> by customers. And it like you exist in this world that is you have no control of. And um if somebody wants that, uh, for whatever reason, I think that you know there are people in almost any uh, area. In fact, we we had probably one of the most successful people on the field engineering team, and she's still there to this day. Was in HR uh, at, at Tanium. She was a, an HR person in the Air Force. She came over to Tanium, went in the to HR. She came and talked to me one day and said, "Look, this is who I am. This is what makes me tick. I've got some technical chops." Um, give me a shot. And we did, we gave her a shot and she started as, you know, we had, I think we called them associate TAMs or something. And the, the, like she didn't get any special treatment, you know, nothing like that. She, she made it through the interview process. And today she leads a a team of federal uh, field engineers. She's by far one of the best field engineers that Tanium has Uh, absolute success story. So they can come from anywhere just to be honest. It's more about do they have those ingredients, and, right. you know, especially with the aptitude. It makes a lot of sense. You know, I also think a lot of our experiences have been kind of in the B2B world. You know, you're, you're sort of building products and services that serve large organizations. There's obviously the customer is different in that example. Um, but there's also, I think, functional kind of things that emerge from from differences when you're selling to a business versus a customer namely like you know deal sizes are often obviously orders of magnitude higher for 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 businesses the deployments can become more complicated because there's just a lot more there interesting question is is there a role for field engineers in sort of b2c kinds of companies uh yeah i think it, it looks substantially different uh than what it would look for in the B2B world. Um, you know, it, it sort of has to, to be cost effective. Uh, so if, if you look at it in, in B2B, it's going to be much higher touch. Um, they're going to have a lot more dwell time on a, yeah. a given customer, that kind of thing. So I, I think the short answer is yes, but um, it, it's going to be probably almost unrecognizably uh, different than it would be in the, the B2B world. My two cents. Um, sure. Certainly, the the lion's share of my experiences is in you know, business to business, large accounts, um, that sort of thing. But yeah, you know, so I've got to be got to tender my comments with that. 
Sure. Yeah. And I guess it brings up another interesting question of, is there a spectrum of kind of attributes on the B2B spec, you know, side of the house where you say, you know, obviously if there are really large deals where there's sort of fit and finish that you have to add to the product for a particular customer, you're, um, you know, you, and not only that, but sort of the economics make sense where you've got the margins to, to put that high touch with this really like critical and expensive talent, um, you know, onto those accounts. Is there, you know, sort of at what point in on that spectrum, um, is, is are there any rules of thumb for when you're like, yeah, it really makes sense that we need to have a pretty vibrant, you know, field engineering or TAM sort of community of practice here or um, or maybe you have that talent, but it's just applied in a different way so that it can scale a bit better. Like, how do you how do you think about where the where, where those lines draw? Yeah, I think it. So much of that is dependent upon the complexity of the product. Like, and I use product in a very loose sense there, right? Um, it, product complexity drives so much of the decision making around and, and understanding that product complexity typically uh, reduces over time, right? A, a young company, the product and execution of that product in, the, in anger at solving whatever problem it's designed for um, is going to require uh, more assistance than it will two years from now or you know, 10 years from now or whatever the case, hopefully at least. Um, and so I think the, the way that you deploy that field engineering team, uh, if you're doing it right, is also going to morph over time. Um, I, I think that that line has to be tied to ultimately um, customer, like you, you've got to provide value. If there isn't clear value that the customer sees, uh, when they are using your product in earnest, then you're like, something's wrong at that point. And it may be the product itself. It may be the, you know, the way it's, maybe you're not getting operationalized. It's becoming shelfware or whatever. There's lots and lots of like the number of pitfalls there are innumerable almost. Um, it, that field engineering team isn't magic, right? So if there's a problem with the product, they should be first to recognize that perhaps at seeing like, hey, this was a great idea, but when you actually get it into the real world, it doesn't actually work or it doesn't provide the value that we thought it would, what have you. Um, so I think that the, the way that you draw those lines is very dependent upon the product. It's very dependent upon the vertical that product is going into uh, because you know, you, if you look at, at our space, um, our verticals are very, very unique from one another. The things that they'll care about and the, the use cases that they'll have and even the way that they wanna see, even if it's the same data, uh, the way that they'll want to see that or that data articulated to them visually or, or what have you is going to vary dramatically. Um, and so I think it's it almost, uh, especially in the early days, it's almost bespoke um, by company, by product and by vertical that you're playing in. And then as time goes by, it, it starts to sort of converge and your product matures and you can back off a little bit in terms of the amount of touch required. And that sort of thing. So hopefully, hopefully that makes some sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I mean, I I know every startup is totally unique, and you know, you're you're sort of making incremental decisions in a, in a pretty quick way. Um, but I think it sounds to me like if you've got a if you've got a product that you know you're going to be sort of high dollar amounts, it's going to be a, a you know significant engagement with the customer to make sure that they're 
employing it that there's some complexity to installation um there's you know you have a, a notion perhaps that the thing could be a platform you know in the sense that there's a lot of directions you can take the technology and you're really doing something innovative and unique um, those are to me sound like telltale signs that bringing field engineering types of folks on earlier than later is going to help you really understand the market better understand the customer make your product better uh, improve customer satisfaction. Um, you know, and maybe when you're you're in a bit of a more simplified space, or the margins are lower, and you're sort of, um, you know, I'm thinking more like uh, there's there's this there's this article um, by a guy named uh, Leslie who um, uh, teaches, I think, marketing at Stanford, and he has a spectrum of like if you're selling jet engines or toothpaste, it's sort of like yeah. very yeah. different kinds of they they, they they call it like Leslie's compass and some of the go to market research. It certainly if you're on that jet engine side of things where it's a, you know, it's a very complicated sort of multifactorial uh, product that you're selling, it's very clear that th this role is, is, is so crucial to getting success. Um, even if the product's perfect, like you still need this kind of role to make sure that you've got success when it, when it, when it, the rubber meets the road, when it, when you, yeah. when you're sort of introduced to a customer. You know, any advice for entrepreneurs that are, you know, very early stage and thinking about potentially bringing on um, a field engineer? Like, when do they, when do they know that it's, when do they, what are some telltale signs that like, you know, you need to bring on a field engineering capacity? Yeah, I think there's, there's really, there's some red flags factors that you can look for. Um, first and foremost, if, if you're at the point where you are putting product uh, and it may be immature, it may be early stage, but you are putting product into the hands of customers and you go into it very confident um, that you're delivering what they've asked for and they don't see the value in it. Um, the Like, it's really, really easy to say, well, I just need my product folks, my product developers to talk to the customer. Um, I, like, I've seen companies 10 years old that are, are trying to do that and it still doesn't work. And it's not, that's not a reflection of their product engineers being in, in some way um, insufficient or delinquent or anything else. And it's also not, a, you know, we like to blame the customer in cases like that and say, well, they don't understand. What they Go back to, and there are, you know, there are arguments to be made about that. And, you know, there's Henry Ford had some good quotes around that. <laughs> At the end of the day, you, you need, like, that's when you, you have this, um, the first sign that you need somebody that can understand both sides equally well, who can get in really deep with the customer and live in their world and understand the problem, right? Get close to the problem and then come back and you know, they don't go native. They don't become like, I'm a customer advocate only. What they are is an impartial, they almost act as an impartial third party between the two, between you as a company and the customer as a consumer, whatever it is you're putting in their hands they become the person who can articulate for both sides and, and advocate for both sides and figure out where the, where reality is. Um, because it's always going to be this blend of customer experience and the product that you're trying to produce. I would argue that's pretty darn early. Uh, we're really good at, at, you know, when you look at entrepreneurs are really good at the idea piece. Um, it's the execution piece that we often aren't so good at. Um, and I actually, I go back when I'm trying to articulate this to people. I had, I did a startup in uh, the late nineties. I did my own startup, uh, started a, a healthcare IT company. And the number of physicians who I interacted with, who 
assumed that because they are a brilliant physician and they understand their practice um, and they've built a company around some piece of technology for that particular, you know, whatever their practice is, um, that they will by default be an incredible, they'll be a brilliant business person as well. And so they would, they would resist uh, the, you know, admitting that, Hey, maybe I need to bring in somebody who understands product marketing or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's an easy trap to fall into. And, you know, we look at everything in an early stage startup, like we look at the cost, the expense, you know, that bottom line expense of every single thing we do. And it's easy to keep kicking that can down the road and say, well, I'll, you know, I'll bring in a field engineering component next year, next month or six months or whatever. Meanwhile, you're suffering and you're beating your head against a wall because you, you think you're hearing what the customer is telling you and you're, you know, you're going and you're retasking and reassigning people to, to go make changes into the product. You take it back to the customer and then you get frustrated because the customer's like, that's not what I said. Um, at, at the end of the day, like nobody understands the pain that the customer has better than them. Um, but pretty darn close to that level of understanding is what you can get out of a, a proper field engineer. So that's that's kind of the magic to it, I think, if there is any. I mean, it's so many components of, of being an early stage entrepreneur, I think manifest themselves in a field engineer. Um, you know, I've, it's often said about product folks that they're, they're, you know, sort of, there's a lot of that sort of cross-functional yeah. thing that they do that is, you know, a lot of, it's a, it's a breeding ground for a lot of founders, right? Is, is like yeah. product, but field engineering is a, is a really special place because there's, I think there's a technical component to it that's much deeper even than, yeah. than product. And, so I could see that it would be a really compelling and attractive thing for young people who um, have the sort of proclivities that you you outlined earlier, um, you know, an insatiable curiosity for trying to figure out how things work, an attraction towards problems that people find impossible, uh, an enjoyment in trying to distill very complicated things into simple representations you know yeah. einstein said you truly understand something when you can explain it to your grandmother right like that that sort of thing um and uh, so so i could see how this could be a really compelling and attractive field for folks to want to get into what would you say to somebody who's in you know in high school or college who's you know done it or computer science or whatever yeah. sort of technical field or or maybe not maybe you know maybe humanities and anthropology but they they, they, they hear about this and say wow this could this could really be it i mean i think maybe this is what i want to do um when when i when i uh, get out of school like what are some of the things they can do now to 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 cultivate i guess both the 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 innate characteristics they have that will make them successful at the job, but also practical skills uh, that would help them hit the ground running as a field engineer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that the, like the big thing you've got to do is sort of proof this out for yourself. Um, because I think a, an awful lot of people think that like, yeah, right on, this is what I want to do. And you know, I love to learn new things, what have you. Um, I think you've got to sort of test that theory a little bit. Um, you've got to go and say, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm going to go pick up, you know, $50 worth of raspberry Pi and some parts and some crap. And I'm going to put together, you know, do you actually want to, like, do you actually get enjoyment from that? Cause there's an awful lot of people that don't, <laughs> right. um, like we, we tend to romanticize things, um, usually because we think, oh gosh, grass is greener over there. And you know, I got this humanities degree and I don't really like it or you know, change my mind or whatever that's like the quickest path to find out if it's really for you is go tackle something that's completely outside your scope of expertise 
uh, totally. Um, and at the end of that, look back and go, did I just like, was that awesome? Did I have a good time doing that? Would I, do I wish I had more time to do things like that? And if the answer to that is yes, then yeah, the chances are pretty good that like you could make that leap uh, and do a, a midstream career change or you know, what have you. And uh, trust me, those people are out there. I, I gave you one example and I could give you probably uh, at least a dozen uh, folks that were, have been on my teams in the past that that describes. So I don't, that's not a terribly uncommon thing. Again, it's just figuring out and proving to yourself, is this really something that I would thrive in? Um, because at the end of the day, I, I will say, like, it, it's not all roses. Uh, being field facing, being customer facing, uh, there are certainly negatives to that. Like you, you also, along with being the person who gets to solve the customer's problems, you're the person that gets to hear about them. Um, you're the person that gets to hear a lot about when they're unhappy and what they're unhappy about. And, you know, it's... I'm always nice to, to people who, you know, cold call me or customer service people if I have to call in because I'm having problems with, you know, my bank or what have you, because like, those are the people who get beat up all day, every day by everybody. Like, I don't know, man, you're just, you're the face that goes with shift five or, you know, whoever the company is. Uh, so I'm taking it out on you. So if you don't have that passion sort of driving you to carry you at, at those moments where you're like, okay, if I have to hear this for another five minutes, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's what makes it, in some cases, you just got to tolerate some some yep. bumps in the road. So, It's great advice, Egan. Well, um, this has been, I think, really enlightening. And I know I, I just did not understand field engineering really until, until we met and, and, um, you know, I gained an appreciation for, oh my gosh, those are exactly the problems. Those that you're describing exactly the problems that we have and, and learning more about field engineers and this whole sort of spectrum of activities that is, uh, complementary but so distinct to what product engineers and product people do. Um, I feel like once you've experienced those problems as an entrepreneur or, or solved those problems as, as a technologist, like you get a sense for what field engineering is, but I think hearing it in, in a cohesive presentation from someone who's been there, done that and, and grown field engineering organizations from nothing into these like vibrant and very successful things has been, um, it's been a pleasure having you on. So I hope to have you on again really soon. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. It's, uh, I always enjoy talking about it. And, uh, but look forward to the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.